Welcome back to Crazy Faith Talk. I'm Steve. I'm Erica. And I'm Sarah. So friends, we're in a new series for Lent where we're talking about transitions. Specifically, we're going to start this series talking about transitions in the church and then hopefully eventually move into transitions in, in life in general. So we've talked about what it looks like for a United Methodist like myself um, to transition from one church into a new church and what um, my evangelical Lutheran colleagues um, what it looks like for them to transition. So where are we going in today's episode? Well, now that we've talked about the process of either being appointed or being called to a congregation, well, now we're here. <laughs> we are beginning a new ministry with a new congregation. What now? So what are some good practices both for congregations and for pastors to begin this ministry together? Because, like... You know, this this is always a partnership, right? Like it's not it's not the pastor show and it's not the congregation show. It's we're now working together to do God's work in the world. But there are things that we could do either as pastors or congregations to make this smoother. Um, and then sometimes like it just isn't done well and it is kind of a disaster. So should we start first with what pastors could do or what, what congregations could do? Like, where should we start? Maybe maybe let's start because we are pastors. It would be helpful for us to point the finger at ourselves and then talk about what what, what, yeah. what in our experience would be helpful for congregations. Okay. Um, and I think maybe as a, as a way to segue into that, um, I, I want to call attention to what you said a minute ago. Uh, that is, to me, so helpful, honestly, from, from both sides of this. That idea that, in the end, this is not about either pastor or congregation sort of being the star of the show, but this is partnership. And we talked last time, and the, the differences in process about how appointments or calls happen, and to be kind of crude about it, it, it feels either like an arranged marriage, like at a fiddler on the roof with a matchmaker, or, you know, dating all the way down to the world of dating apps and things like that. And I guess I feel like it's really easy to feel like there's a right way or a wrong way, but like in, in the big picture, it's more in the end, however you started, can you find a way to make a meaningful, lasting relationship mm -hmm. of mutual support and love and care? And so like in, in the years I've gotten to know folks in the congregations where I serve, one of my favorite things is to ask stories about like how couples have married 50 or 60 years, how did they meet? And there's not one st success story for how it works. Sometimes it's, well, it was basically arranged. It was a blind date. So-and-so picked me up with so-and-so. In other words, it's a much more, I dated a bunch of people and we went to that kind of thing. And in the end, it's how do we make the promises to work together to bring the best out of each other? And if pastor can see that and if congregation can see their, their job is collectively we're here for the work that we're convinced God is up to in the world that it's, 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 it's the reverse of um, so much of our culture. It's like, I'm a customer. I'm a paying customer. I should get the, the product that I want. So if I'm the person in the congregation, I should get a product that I want in a pastor. Well, it's not really like that. And pastors don't necessarily, it's not best to see their congregations as, this is the best gig that's good for the perks for me, but more like, how do we both do the work that we're convinced God's called us to do in this place? I think that mindset goes a long, long way for pastors to remember this is, we, we say that this is more than a job. It includes being a job. So all the things that you should have good practices and safe workplace and all that and respect all that. But beyond that, there's a sense in which 
we talk about this like God somehow in the mid, in the midst of it. And I think in, in our in our tradition as Lutherans, and I think probably in lots of different church traditions, we talk about anybody's way you spend your life as vocation. So it's not just only people who work in the church have a vocation, but the idea that what you do for income is not simply about getting a paycheck. Obviously, that's helpful because it's great to eat. But there's a sense of what am I called to do to, to do good in the world? What, what abilities and talents? How can I fit? How can I meet the world's deep hunger of my deep gladness, like Frederick Buechner says? And that has a way of changing things so that the dynamics are different than just a job, uh, an employer, and an employee. What other things do you think pa- pastors, we as pastors need to remember uh, or, or keep in mind? What have been helpful learnings for you in the transitions you've been in before? That to have a good partnership, you have to have relationships. Oh, okay. And so, especially when starting in new congregations, you know, congregation or congregations, depending on your setting, um, you, you need to get to know the people. And granted, the larger the congregation or congregations are, the harder that's going to be. Um, I had a colleague in Western Iowa who had it as one of her goals that in her first year of ministry at her congregation, she was going to visit every single person. And she did it. And she was able to do it because she was serving a rather small congregation. Um, Serving a three-point site right now, I'm not entirely sure I would be able to do that with my limited number of hours. But, like, that was, like, that I think is... such a great way to start off your ministry because you get to be able to connect faces to names and as well as have those congregations have those conversations about like well why are you a member at this church like what do you see your role in this church mm-hmm. um, you know it's kind of a nice way to go oh I didn't realize Mary Alice has been the head of the altar guild for like 50 years She's looking to retire from that position, but like mm-hmm. that has she has been the one to shape the altar guild because she's been there for forever. Um, you know, you might not know that unless you have that conversation with Mary Alice. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I thought that was such a neat practice to be to connect to a new congregation. I heard a story once, maybe, I can't remember if it was at an assembly of some kind that you were at as well, Sarah, where someone talked about their first day in a new congregational call, their first day, they went into the office, set down their stuff, asked for a directory, and went out to go start making visits on their first day, knowing that people were going to come by the pastor's first day and want to know what the pastor was up to, and that they wanted to set the tone saying, I'm, I'm intentionally, first thing, being out getting to know people, um, as a way of sort of saying, my, my, my way of getting to know people is not you come to me, but I'll come find you, that, exactly that, like even down to how do you spend your first I, day. I do remember that, because I remember making the comments that to set myself up for success, I would want to make sure that my office was in order. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, my first thing is to, you know, unpack, settle in so that, you know, when I'm week two, I don't have to be digging around trying to find my favorite preaching right. lectionary right, right. thing, like, because I know where it is. It's on the shelf. Like, right. um, yeah, I, I do remember that because I remember thinking, surely that could wait for days. <laughs> surely. But, and I, I guess I feel like obviously that the point of that story was a bit exaggerated. That like, yeah, there's other things that you could do, or you know, but like the idea of those first 
set a tone and whatever you do to realize that there's a symbolic weight to first things that are done. First sermons, you know, have a way of making like a first impression. The the the, the way you introduce yourself and carry yourself. Um, it's it, even if you're in a in a setting whose polity isn't like dating, you know, like like our our tradition feels a lot more like that. Even if you're in a system where someone has put you here's where you are, you're now still meeting people for the first time, and they shape impressions based on what what they what they see and hear, and realizing that the the what we do at the beginning says something about priority. I guess I feel kind of like. Um, not to get all Jesusy, but like that. There's that famous scene in Luke's gospel when he goes to his hometown and preaches in the synagogue, and this is the first time we hear Jesus speak publicly in Luke's gospel, and he sets the tone by the spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news to the poor and recovery of sight to the blind. The year of the Lord, like this is Jesus, not just hey, this is just what happened to me. The text handed to me. Luke presents us as this is this is Jesus' agenda in a sense, and realizing things that we choose to spend our time on or energy in the beginning have the force of feeling like this is what matters to me, this is where I'm going to spend my energy. Even if you change that later on, or even if circumstances you know, moderate, like this is sort of my sense of where we're headed. And knowing that gives a certain weight, I guess, to the things you do early on, that six months down the road, somebody catches in the office, they won't make an assumption about how you spend your time, or they're, you're not at the office at a particular time, they won't necessarily assume, but first have a way of, uh, I guess, uh, carrying a certain half. I've heard that from a colleague who does the same thing, Sarah, is, you know, goes out and meets, you know, tries coffee, dinner, whatever, whatever works for the members of the congregation. Um, and that was his advice to me. He was my mentor, my first appointment. That was his advice to me when I moved here to Marion Center. Uh, I'm not extroverted enough quite <laughs> to do that well. And not that he is. He just has more years of ministry than I do. Uh, but I like that. Another thing that's always been pressed upon me in the United Methodist system, and maybe because of the um, quote-unquote arranged marriage <laughs> nature of our appointment system, is not to change anything for the first six months to a year. Mm-hmm. Yes. Now, sometimes you have to because you just walk into a situation that just it right. needs, it's asking, it's begging for change. Um <laughs> But most of the time, like, just to kind of sit back and get the feel of congregational life, get the feel of, of how worship, especially for us, like, I know in the, in the ELCA and in the Lutheran Church in general, your worship is very much more scripted. At least that's my understanding but from my experience worshiping in your churches um, than necessarily ours is. You know, you don't necessarily go to Methodist Church and know it's going to be exactly this way. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, yes, but yes. we also have, like, 12 different scripts we could follow. <laughs> so, like, again, I've also been told don't do any major changes in the first year. Just learn their history, yeah. their traditions. Because, you know, you might be thinking, oh, this isn't the way we should be doing X, Y, and Z. But they might have a very, very good reason for doing X, Y, and Z. Like, in my, when I was going through seminary, there was a big push of one of the hills that you need to die on is communion every Sunday. Mm-hmm. Like, if your congregations are not doing communion every Sunday, you need to change that right away. And if people put a, like, protest, that's a hill to die on. And so I went off to seminary, or, or internship, with that in mind of, like, that's a hill to die on. And my internship only had communion once a month. First Sunday of the month. And I was like, no, this is 
like, we can't do this. Ah. Well, it turns out they only had communion on the first Sunday of the month because that was the only guaranteed Sunday that the my pastor supervisor was going to be there because he was the only ordained minister um, in the conference. And so, especially when he had interns, he made sure that he was there on the first Sunday of the month to do communion. But then the rest of the time, he might be off at another congregation to give them communion and to preach for them so that they actually heard, you know, an ordained minister preach. Um, and then the rest of the time, like, and, but then he would know that I was there providing worship for the congregation he was called to. I just couldn't do communion because I wasn't ordained yet. Yeah. And so there was a perfectly reasonable explanation as to why this congregation only had communion once a month. That's because that's the only time the ordained minister was there. I think there's, in addition to that realization that sometimes pastors who maybe come out of their previous experience or seminary thinking they have all the answers and have to learn, like, oh no, there's good reasons. Sometimes it's also a matter of tone. Like, I, I can remember, not as a, as a pastor, but as a, a member of a congregation of the church where I was a kid, the arrival of a new pastor um, who who um, I'm sure had the best of intentions and a good list of liturgical reasons why he wanted to make the changes that he wanted to make. But the way it came off hit a lot of folks in the congregation. Like he was saying, you were doing it wrong. You've been offending God all this time. Let me show you the right way to do it. As though, like, seriously, as though God is setting up and having, like, there's a right way to do it. And, like, again, there's a way to get folks to go along with changes that... Um, Includes people and it's like, hey, if we thought about this. What are they, and like? And when you get to know, how did how did we get here? How did you end up with communion once a month? Oh, there's a reason for it. Got it. We don't need to change, you know, fight that battle. Or oh, you never thought about doing it this way. Could we try it and see? And here's the rationale, the reason why we might, and all that kind of thing. And in a way that's collaborative, that brings people along for the decision rather than I'm here, I'm seeing you're doing something the wrong way. You're bad. Like that has a way of hitting people really it, like it 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 has a way of saying your faith wasn't acceptable before and now I've come to fix you. Um yeah, no wonder that's gonna get people to shut down. So like I think part of the idea of intentionally not making big dramatic changes is also a way of saying I have things to learn from you even though I'm the pastor um and being intentional about that rather than coming off with you were doing it wrong, you morons. I mean, nobody wants to hear that. <laughs> One of the first questions I always ask when I go into a new church, and I say always because I've been in two. One hundred percent of the time. Yeah, one hundred percent of the time is what did your previous pastor do? Like what's vesting? Mm -hmm. Again, I know in the Lutheran church that's a definitely more common thing. In the Methodist church, it all depends on the church and the service. Um, and, and I have spoken and preached at other denominations. Uh, I preached at another Methodist church um, several months ago now. I co-preached with their pastor and, and just confirmed. I was pretty sure that they did invest in that church, and I was correct. Um, but I don't want to... I prefer to wear an owl on Sunday mornings. That's just my preference. Um, partially, I think, because I'm a woman, and it just makes it easier. Like, there's no question about the wardrobe. Uh, <laughs> but if the church isn't used to that, you know, then I don't want to put on this formality and this, mm -hmm. this high church stuff on, on a church maybe a lot lower. And it's helpful too to like even just knowing that it doesn't necessarily mean you have to you have to dramatically change who you are or but like 
then it becomes, oh, this is a teachable moment. At some point, I can talk about, here's why I do this, or Mm here's, rather than, if a congregation already gets it, you don't have to go through that lecture all over again. Oh, you already get it? You know this? Okay, good. But if it's a, oh, you've got a different experience, well, let me tell you about why this has become important for me. And then, now, now there's dialogue, and it's not a lecture of you were doing it wrong. And it's not like I try to get away with, like, shorts and a t-shirt on everything, because it's just... Yeah, like I said, it's for for me. It's a personal choice as a woman in ministry. It's just easier because then there's no comments about me wearing pants or wearing a skirt that's maybe too short, which for me comes to my knees. <laughs> you know, um, all those things. But yeah, you know. So if they don't understand that, and right. I want to get them into that, I can kind of explain that, or if right. they're used to it, right? Well, then yeah, they're used to it. What I find fascinating with wardrobe and new pastors and like congregations getting used to like. A new pastor's personal style is, is the realization that we're individuals mm-hmm. and like that is where it kind of crops up I think the most as to oh you're different than our previous pastor um, because it used to be you know 50 years ago all the pastors were men and men's dress attire especially for clergy was pretty much identical Mm -hmm. and then women came onto the scene and our dress attire is very (laughs) different because it depends on body type yeah and so what i wear isn't necessarily going to be what my co-pastor wears isn't going to be what my husband wears isn't even going to be what my good friend pastor area down the road is going to wear because we are very we are very different and Again, that's why I like vesting, which for those of you who aren't familiar with that very churchy word, that's the, the, the attire we wear on Sundays like on top of our regular clothes. So albs, cassocks, um, robes, you know, whatever you happen to be wearing. I like those because it unifies whoever I'm doing worship mm-hmm. with. Um, that it no longer is, oh, I do or do not choose to wear a clergy collar. Mm-hmm. Oh, I do or do not choose to wear either dress pants or a skirt. Like, I'm going to wear something. But, like, you know, yeah. it's over top of all of that is the alb, is the stole. And, therefore, my co-pastor and I, who have very different personal tastes, suddenly we look unified. Yeah. And to me, I think it can be helpful for a congregation to see how many parts of our life in faith are expressions of individual personality and then also what are things that are part of a wider tradition or reason or things like that. Because I think sometimes people assume it's uniform and what happens here is what happens everywhere and forever and ever, amen. Um, like, so for me, that, that same notion of even though, yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a longer history of uniformity in male Lutheran clergy dress. Um, for me, wearing an alb every Sunday is not just, well, it's expected of Lutherans, because there are other Lutherans for whom they sort of let go of that piece is what's essential. But for me, it's that sort of like, whatever other stuff about me, like nobody has to worry or judge about, like, uh, yeah, their holes in his pants or, you know, whatever. Um, it, it's sort of like getting beyond myself. That, like, it's not really about me pointing beyond myself and for me, has become like this echo of the way, you know, in our baptism we're talking about being clothed with Christ, and even in our death, when we put the casket and we cover the casket with a, a large white pall as a way of saying, it's not about whether you can afford the fanciest casket, but like, mm-hmm. you know, there's this sort of uniformity, we're clothed in Christ, not about whatever person, like, and that, but but even realizing that that's important to me is a, that's a my personal piety thing, and I can't assume whoever else will serve in a pastoral role will have those particular 
um, uh, focus points for them. They, they may have other good theological or pious reasons for why they want to do something different. Investing is not a requirement. Right. Even in the Lutheran church. When I was nine months pregnant, I no longer fit into my old. And so I had two choices. I could either not wear it all, or I could borrow one of the assisting minister's alls, which the next, like, the smallest size was huge on me because I'm a pretty small person. Um, so I look like a pregnant 13-year-old wearing an adult all. Like, that's just what I look like with the assisting minister's alls. Or I could wear uh, one of the acolyte albs and definitely look like a third pregnant person. Like, like, and that's like there was three weeks there where I felt like there was a no-win situation. So mm-hmm. I decided, especially because it was in the middle of summer and hot, that I wasn't going to wear an alb. Mm-hmm. And yeah. there was such a congregational pushback from that because in the congregation I serve, one of the congregations I serve now. They expect to see pastor's vest. Mm-hmm. Like, that's their expectation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it was a really hard conversation to have of like, yes, it's an expectation, but it's not a requirement. Mm-hmm. This isn't forever. Right. In a few weeks, I'll be able to fit into clothing again. Mm-hmm. But for right now, yeah. I can still fit into my clergy maternity shirt and uh, skirt, really. But do not fit. In, in a sense, like when you're starting in a new setting as a pastor, like hopefully there will have been before your first day you know, leading a worship service, you'll have had at least some chance to get to know some of the feel of, and whether it's uh, somebody higher up saying this person's style fits with this congregation style, or you've read it in their paperwork matching with your, but like hopefully there's some sense of nobody has played a cruel cosmic joke and put the person who uh, hates to wear vestments in a congregation where they demand, but hopefully there's a match of style there in our traditions as well. Um, So that if you are the kind of person who's like, I totally hate wearing vestments and I never would, why would you go to a congregation if that's a sticking point? But like, if the, and, and it's in those middle places of like, oh, this is for a season, this is for a time, oh, okay, that makes, and like sometimes congregations have to do a little bit of thinking out of, Oh, there are exceptions to circumstances, and and those moments become growing edge kind of learning moments, too. Could I ask, maybe could we flip the script for a minute and and in each of your experience talk a little bit about what would be helpful from a congregation's vantage point as they are welcoming a new pastor, whether it's been appointed from on high or they've called them with a committee and such, what would be helpful to make that transition welcoming a new person as smooth as possible? Okay, so huge one for me, um, because of some circumstances I've been through in my congregation that I've realized years later, please, 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 please tell your new pastor your traditions, uh, whether they be traditions about worship and, and what is that, you know, there's those things that are in the bulletin that, you know, are, are clearly like, this is a part of worship because it's written in the bulletin. Then there's those unspoken things that are not in the bulletin, but have become a tradition of your church. Or whatever it might be, you know, I'm not saying, I'm not mad at the congregations for not telling me these things, but like, it's just, you know, the traditions around worship, the traditions around events and programming mm-hmm. and, and things, mm-hmm. you know, um, what does your congregation do for Mother's Day and Father's Day and, and, and those kind of things, uh, what are expected from your pastor for those Events, you know, do you, do you expect your pastor to be at every meeting? Right. Um, do you expect your pastor to show up to every event at the church? 
that just helps everybody start off on the right foot. And I, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned, like, that you got to name those, and if the pastor's coming in with the wisdom of, I'm not looking to majorly shake things up in the first six months or a year, but then there may come a point when, after a certain amount of time, like, okay, you're asking me to be at every meeting, here's why I'm asking, can we change X or Y or Z? But then at that, after a point of, look, I've tried to give this a try, and here's the input I would have, that, that's not just walking in saying, nope, you're a deal breaker for me, that there's a, sort of that mutual back and forth. And maybe it's helpful for congregations. I'm so glad you mentioned this because there's probably a lot of things in any given congregation that have become traditions that people don't realize have become traditions because they're unspoken, right? That, like, in, in a way, almost like in in um, in the Jewish tradition, there's the written scriptures, and then there's like the midrash and the targum and all these other like oral traditions that go around them that everybody knows but aren't you know the the words of Moses. Um, that like our churches do that as well so that there's an official here's what we print in the bulletin oh but doesn't everybody know that we also all hold hands to pray the Lord's Prayer doesn't everybody know that we also do X or Y or Z and no the pastor is the one person who wasn't here before and doesn't know that it's important to but if, if you're used to everybody knows it sometimes we forget the things that other people who are outside don't speak our language and for me as United Methodist you know with our appointments typically starting July 1st that means that we're in the church for almost six months before Christmas rolls around mm-hmm. and almost a year before Easter rolls around. That's nice. And so it's nice. <laughs> it's great to kind of get the flow of the church, but then there's traditions that go with Christmas and Easter that the congregation isn't necessarily thinking of in the first three or four months of the pastor's there. And then after you've been there for three, four, five months, they're like, well, the pastor knows everything that's going on. And so then you run, you run into your first Christmas or your first Easter and you're like, well, the pastor didn't do this. Well, nobody told me you right. did this because you didn't think about it in July, and I didn't think about it in July because I've got five million other things in my yeah. life trying to visit everybody and do all right. these things, yeah. trying to get you know, and you kind of get into a rhythm. At least for me, I get into a rhythm by that point where I don't think to then ask in December when Christmas rolls around. Hey, are there traditions that you have around Advent and mm-hmm. Christmas that I should know about as mm-hmm. my first year here? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And in my Easter, forget it. Like I've, I've been there for almost a year now. Like, yeah. I'm really not going to think about, oh, wait, are there traditions that you do around the, you know? Um, so keeping track, especially when you know that you're getting a new pastor. Mm-hmm. And in the Methodist Church, like I said, it's usually February, March, April, at least in my conference, where we're finding that out. Um, sometimes it's later, sometimes it's earlier, but that's the general time range. Start jotting those things down. Like when yeah. you hear that, like your pastor is moving, jot down the things that yeah. are the unspoken traditions of your church. So that yeah. when your new pastor comes, you can hand it to him or her yeah. on a piece of paper and say, "Here are some of our traditions for the whole year." When I first started the call I'm in right now, uh, one of the leaders in the worship and music area of the congregation. Uh, handed me a binder of like collected things that were sort of along that line like hey here's stuff that we've done in recent years all these different times throughout the year and it wasn't presented to me like in the spirit in which it was handed to me was really helpful it wasn't like this is what you have to copy do this or and it wasn't the opposite don't do any of these things because we've already done it but it was like this will give you a flavor for what kinds of things we've done if it's helpful to see and then that w- I could in a leisurely way you know, in the summer, in the fall, whatever, be looking ahead, oh, here's what they've done in previous Christmases. Or That was huge. Yeah. And it was that awareness. Now, in, in a tradition like 
ours where congregational transitions sometimes get spread out over a long, long time. Like a congregation may be living, waiting to call a new pastor, and it may be months or years. Sometimes you got the time to prepare and go, oh, well, for whoever comes next, we, need, we could be assembling this. In other traditions where the transitions are a lot shorter, that's hard to put together, but that's helpful. In a similar way, when I was an, an intern in seminary, the pastor who was my supervisor went on sabbatical for about six weeks, no, three months, six weeks into my internship. And before that happened, um, he had been in this congregation, in this call for probably about 15 or 20 years already there. And um, he had accumulated a bunch of other jobs that were not in the job description, but like fell to him the way often pastors pick up a lot of other odds and ends. And one of the things that they did in that moment was preparing for the transition, not just writing it down and saying, now you intern, you got to do all this, but it was a chance for the congregation to take stock and go, wait a second, a lot of this stuff has gotten dumped on the pastor over a lot of time. Some of these things should be his to take back when he comes back from sabbatical, but some of these things so-and-so should do or someone else should do and we should change and it became a moment for the congregation to sort of retake stock of who does things but mm-hmm. also reinvestment and the, the, just the checking in of is this is how we've been doing things do we want to keep doing it this way and, and discovering that that's what prevents things from fossilizing I guess you know yeah how about for you Sarah I think something that I would find tremendously helpful because it's not happened yet but it should, (laughs) is having an honest conversation about expectations around the pastor's family Hmm. and how they can help the pastor's family. Um, And, you know, specifically, my husband and I are clergy couples. We do not go anywhere near each other's congregations, typically. Like, we are not there for special events, even if it's, like, you know, if there's a Sunday night dinner that they do once a year, I'm not going to go to that. Like, I'm just not. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and likewise, my husband doesn't come to my, my church's things. And that has ruffled the feathers of some of his congregations in the past. That they don't ever see me. They don't feel like they get to know me. And Russ has to go, well, yeah, she's not your pastor. Right. Why would you get right. to know her? Right. Um, but we also have two children together. And they're still very, very small. We want to grow them in the church. And for us, that means we kind of want, we would love to have them have honorary aunts and uncles and grandparents and like, you know, brothers and sisters in the faith who are willing to sit with them in worship and help them learn what worship is about, help them learn how you sit respectfully in a church service. And some congregations that we've been a part of have been very on board with this and have, like, wholeheartedly embraced it and, like, they love that that is their role for our family. But we've also had other congregations who has resented that role. And another point I'm going to come to, they don't talk to me about it. They talk to each other about it until they get all mad and finally somebody blows up and yells at me, why don't you have a babysitter? Mm-hmm. And like, why, are, why aren't these kids home with a babysitter? I don't bring my children to work. Why do you get to bring your children to work? Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, because they were like, this one was literally baptized in your building. Mm-hmm. It is a member of your church. 
are you telling me that this child that you promised to help guide in the faith isn't welcome on Sunday morning? Right. And so having that honest conversation about what expectations are, because if I realized that that was their expectation, mm-hmm. it would have would have prevented a lot of really hurt feelings on everybody's side. I think, as you mentioned this, that means the difficult work, and I don't think this is just limited to church transitions, but like the difficult thing for humans is the ability to be... Um, to self-examine and to look at, like, what are the things that are my expectations? Because a lot of times, my guess is, most folks in any congregation think of themselves as friendly and nice and good, and that's what's great, makes our church great, is we're friendly and nice and good. And it's only when somebody goes, well, wait a second, does that friendliness mean that you will, you know, that the the pastor who's got a young child that you'd be willing to sit, and in some places, yep, of course that's what it means, and sometimes it's, oh, I never really, and I get that, that ability for us back and forth, both pastor and congregation, to, to encourage one another and the model good, like, self-reflective, like, self-analytical, what, what are the things I do expect or what are the things that I... And to be able to verbalize that and, and to be able to have those, like you said, conversations one-on-one, not like, I'm upset at somebody, I'm not going to talk to them about it, but I'm going to go vent about it to somebody else. That's not helpful. And in some ways, it feels like maybe somewhere down the road... We need to do a whole long-term conversation series in this podcast even about like how do you have difficult but truthful conversations because that's a skill that is not well-practiced yes. in a culture like ours. And, and that was my part B. Okay. Helpful things for congregations to do to get to know your pastor or to be in a relationship with your pastor. Talk to your pastor, not about your pastor. Mm-hmm. Like if you notice that, oh, hey, the pastor isn't observing this tradition I would really like him or her to observe. Go to your pastor and talk to them. Don't talk to your neighbor about how mad you are that your pastor didn't observe Mother's Day correctly. But rather, go talk to your pastor about it. Like, have that conversation. Yeah, and that then opens up the door in both directions for it. I gotta own. This is my expectation. This is what we've always done. And here, I was disappointed when we didn't do it that way. And again, like this, this gets into like the even the importance of how you own, like with I statements like that. Okay, it's not that I'm saying that the only way to do Mother's Day is the way I was picturing it, but this is what I was used to, so I was disappointed when they didn't do this way, and I've got to own that. And then the pastor can say, okay, that's helpful to know. I didn't have that information. I wasn't trying to slight you or to say you were doing it wrong. What can we do in the future? Here are my concerns, or here's how I would like to do it. Um, and that kind of attitude goes so much farther than there's one right way, and either you guess by you know mental telepathy what the right way is that will make me happy or you flip or you fail but like this how do we talk about it in advance is a big deal can i go back to the the conversation around family responsibilities with the pastor yeah because i have been telling my congregation as long as i've been here i'm a single pastor which allows me to do things in the community that you all as, as married pastors and with children, may not necessarily be able to do just because of time. Mm-hmm. You know, I can go to sporting events. I can go to every Friday night football game when there's not a pandemic. You know, I can go to every home swimming and, you know, every home whatever that any sport or activity my kids are in because I have some more free time. I don't have somebody, I have a dog at home, but she's fine. You know, like, I don't have somebody at home that I'm responsible for. But mm-hmm. I've been trying to tell my congregation for years I don't plan on being single for the rest of my life, folks. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> there might come a time where I'm married and, you know, I know you've appreciated this about me, but 
I might not always be able to do sure. this. Sure. Or you might get another pastor that comes in here that just isn't into youth sports or is married and has children. You know, right. like that is such an important conversation to realize, like the family situation. And it even you two, Steve, you're married to a lay person, and Sarah, you're married to a clergy person. And so those relationships are different. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You both as married clergy with children, right? And I, I have said all my ministry, I'm so glad that I am clergy because I can never be a clergy spouse. <laughs> um, I, I do not recommend it as somebody who is technically a clergy spouse. It's, it's, like, it's a hard, it's a hard calling, and I would say it's a calling to yeah. be a clergy spouse because there are certain expectations, especially for women. You know, at least there have been in the past. I think things are changing a little bit, which I'm grateful for. But there are certain expectations that the pastor's spouse, in your case, you that Sarah would mm-hmm. play the piano and teach study school and do all these things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and you know what? There are some women that, and some men, because there are males, mm-hmm. clergy yeah. spouses too, that aren't clergy themselves, that are called to do, you know, that are right. gifted for those kind of things. But a lot are not. Right. Well, and, and that also, and like that, that's a place where those boundaries are important to say at the beginning, I think. That like, it, and it, it, in my family story, um, my, my wife's father is a pastor, retired now, and my wife's mother had often been in those positions where she kind of got drafted into, she'll be the pinch hit organist. And again, she had, has the skill to do that and could do that and serve well for a while, but... There's so many ways that can go awry that unless there's clarity at the beginning of you've called me to be the pastor, that doesn't mean everybody else in my family is bonus free labor for Sunday school or you know whatever. And realizing that is important because mm-hmm. again, it gets the expectations. Um, and I, I guess I think even too, the, the, as, as you were describing um, the, the the differences between sort of life situation, whether single or married, kids, no kids, that kind of thing. Those things will change over the course of a person's lifetime. And sometimes, again, we forget that pastors are human beings. Um, And uh, that those transitions are going to happen in life. And especially, like, as I look at, like, the 15 years I've been serving almost in the the congregations where I've been right now, there's been a lot, a lot of changes in those years in my life as well as in the congregations. And... Obviously, when they first called me, they didn't say, now, so many years from now, will you be having children or something like that? But, like, there is that reality of um, those changes have changed how I could do (coughs) ministry and what it looked like. So, yeah, I could be the person who could go to basketball games and things like that at the drop of a hat. Um, and then, or, you know, go in the middle of the night to a hospital call. And then there's been times where, as children are part of the picture... Like, my day off had to be a lot more fixed. Where that was a day I had to be with the kids or something like that in a way that before, day off, may off, I can sw- switch it around because there's an emergency or whatever. Yeah. But those transitions, w- there's got to be an honesty about that and say, this is part of what the reality is. And yeah, it will mean change. How are we going to make this work together if this continues to be a good, a good fit for us? There's lots, lots more that probably we'll need to say in coming episodes about how we do this transition. Luckily, this is not a two-part series. There's more to talk about uh, in further episodes. So we do invite you to join us for a further conversation as we keep looking at transition in ministry and next time a little more at life in general uh, here on Crazy Faith Talk. See you. Bye.